So I want to start in prayer, and then we're going to jump into a really big conversation that uh, I've been praying about, and hopefully we'll engage you with who Jesus is. But Father, we come to you first, because we know that you are the one who is in control. You're the one who is here in presence, but you're also there in present in so many circumstances and so many places right now. So Father, we come to you knowing that you are a good God that you're an ever-present God, that you're a God who loves us and cares about us and is wise and is truth. And so, Father, this morning, would you open our eyes and our hearts to what you want to do inside of our lives? May you make this conversation tangible, real. Would you make it not just a black-and-white conversation about what is and what isn't, but a conversation where we experience you and maybe are willing to have compassion towards others inside of this. Father, we give you all sorts of things that are happening around our world. Father, just the uh, tragedies of what goes on in the day-to-day -day of humanity, Father, we give you. We ask that uh, more than just answer those questions that, Father, you would um, in a unique way open our eyes to a relationship with you inside of that. Would you allow the gospel to make sense here today? I pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to start with a question. It's not as much fun as my questions usually are, because the question is actually a very popular question that, that I'm going to ask, but is asked by maybe many of you, is asked by our worlds, why would a good God allow evil and suffering to take place? Right? Why would a good God, you say he's a good God, he's a loving God, he's a caring God, why, why would he allow evil and suffering to happen inside of our world, inside of our life, inside of what's going on. Because when you look around the world, you don't have to look very far to see evil and suffering. It feels like it's taking over in some weeks, and other weeks it maybe feels distant, but some weeks it feels very personal. The numbers are staggering when it comes to suffering or evil across the landscape of our world. I looked at numbers, and these numbers are relevant within the last three years. There are 27.6 million people that live inside of forced labor, or what we would call modern slavery currently. 27 million people who really don't have the freedom to choose what they want to do and how they want to do it, who are slaves to other people. There's 783 million people who go hungry around our worlds. And millions that, of that here in the U.S. There's 143 to an estimated 210, somewhere in that range, 143 to 210 million orphans in our world. Only about 250,000 get adopted each year inside of that. Natural disasters, what's going on in Israel and Ukraine and across the world, even in our own United States, where we saw a shooting take place this weekend and tragically took the lives of many. We sit inside of this moment and we watch our world, we watch the news, and that question, let's be honest, is not just for those who have questions about God, who are maybe experiencing Jesus for the first time or don't believe. There are, this question is relatable to all of us, whether you've been in church for a while or you haven't. And today, my goal is to just facilitate a conversation because how could a good God allow evil and suffering seems very legit when you watch all that's going on across the world. 
And yet today what I want to do is maybe look at what Jesus has to say. And I think what he has to say maybe flips that question in a unique way. I don't think how could a good God allow evil and suffering is a bad question inherently. But I think in the face of the story of God, I think Jesus wants to ask us a different question. How is God's goodness revealed in my suffering? How is God's goodness revealed in my suffering? How do we see that play out? We're in a five-week series. You joined us for the last week here called What About? We're looking at the top four reasons that people have questions or doubts around Jesus, God, Christianity. We're just wrestling with them. We just said we want to start a conversation, one that may not lead to a lot of answers, but one that hopefully facilitates running into Jesus. So if you've missed the first four weeks or any of them, they're on our website. Go check it out on YouTube, Spotify, our podcast. We'd love for you to get connected there. But this week, we are looking simply at the question, how about suffering or what about suffering? Now, before I get into just kind of running through it here, I want to stop because I have 40 minutes-ish, okay? And so this conversation really could take place over six weeks, eight weeks. We could do a whole series on this. We could spend a whole year inside of this conversation, really. There's books that's been written. There's podcasts. There's conversations. I believe this topic happens best inside of a conversation setting, What I hope to do is not give you answers to why suffering and evil exist and just leave it at that. What I hope to do is not put a Band-Aid on your question. What I hope to do is just facilitate some thought process that leads to conversations. Because if of any of the conversations, maybe last week's ranks kind of in a tied position with this week's, it is not black and white. This conversation is not a black and white. It is not just a it's this or that. It is very much humanized. There is a lot that goes into this conversation. Personally, there's a lot that goes in this conversation across our world. It's a lot of history. And so I want you to know the heartbeat of this conversation is not Pastor Joel's coming up here to tell you uh, how you should see it, what you should do with it, to have all the answers around it, or just suck it up buttercup, but rather that it would facilitate a conversation of us doing life together in not only the good times, but the hard times. I see throughout the New Testament, the New Testament letters to the church, Paul, who's sitting in prison, writing to the church, a church that's being persecuted, people that are following Jesus in a Roman culture that did not like them. They did not separate this conversation from their community life. It was a part of it. My desire is that that would be the same for us. Now, as we jump in, I just want to set the tone with three things, okay? Three very quick things, just so that we're on the same page, okay? First is this, the conversation I'm going to have with you in some of the application and walkaways are hard to live out. This conversation is hard to live out, okay? It is way easier for me to talk in theory about it than to sit in reality of it. I know that. Right? And some of you are walking through your own sufferings or have experienced evil or maybe you've walked through different things in your life and it's led to a lot of thoughts and questions. I want you to know that you're welcome here. Your conversations and your questions are welcome here. And I'm not going to try to answer every single one or kind of talk you out of thinking the way you're thinking. It's hard to live out. And all of us 
need to sit in a seat of self-reflection, but all of us also need to have an empathy for those around us, not just in this room, but in our life, whether it's mental, emotional, or physical struggles, whether it's, whether it's evils that we've experienced that, that no one else has experienced or someone's experienced that I haven't experienced, right? All of us have different stories that we bring to the table, and no one of them is greater and no one of them is less. God sees them all. But this conversation is hard to live out or maybe play out because the theory of suffering is easier to talk about than the reality of suffering. Now, some resources I would point you to just to continue the conversation. First is this. I believe in counseling. I believe it's one of the healthiest things that you can do. I have done it. Uh, Fieldstone Counseling is a counseling agency we partner with. And uh, if you're interested in what it would look like to step into that or have a conversation about that, we always start kind of internally, and then we, we kind of point you in the right direction. So talk to me, talk to Paige, talk to another staff member, and we would love to walk the journey with you and invite you into that. But Fieldstone happens to be one of several counseling agencies we point to. There's a couple books. Uh, there's a couple books. One's by Tim Keller talking about evil, suffering, how to walk through that. Another one's by Paul David Tripp, and then C.S. Lewis classic, The Problem of Pain. And so these are just books to facilitate the conversation, right? Facilitate a conversation that hopefully will be beneficial to you. So the first one is this conversation can be hard to live out, and it is a conversation that's best done in community. The second thing is this. This conversation is hard because of human nature and worldly culture. Okay, this conversation is hard because of human nature and because of worldly culture, okay? Here's the reality. Our human nature desires ease and comfort desires a life that doesn't include suffering, and our worldly culture plays to that. The quick fixes, or uh, don't worry about it, or kind of move on quickly, or let's go to the next exciting thing. And so the combination of it, the combination of it makes it feel like or look like I shouldn't have to sit in this for very long. I should get, be able to get to the next thing. Or I shouldn't, I, maybe I shouldn't bring it up to others because it might ruin the thing, right? Or maybe it's not as bad as the other person, so maybe I'm not actually suffering and maybe I need to figure it out on my own, right? Whatever it may be, the combination of our human nature that desires comfort and ease of life and fulfilling my, my own self-will and the worldly culture that says, go for the best and do your thing and live the best life now, tells me I maybe shouldn't navigate it. And inside of that, I think we live in a cultural moment that believes salvation equals safety, okay? With salvation equals safety, and so we try to detach from suffering. We try to detach from uh, things that don't feel great, and we try to pursue things where I'm comfortable because that's where salvation is found. That, that's where I'm the best, or that's where I'm the safest, and I can provide it for myself sometimes, and so what I would encourage you to do is this. Don't run away from it, run into it. That's my goal today, is to help us navigate a conversation of how to run into it. I'm not gonna dismiss what you've walked through. I just wanna walk us into how to walk into it and navigate it. Because I think the question, okay, it's, I'm, not gonna say, I'm not saying it's a bad question, but the question of how can a good God allow evil and suffering is primarily a Western culture question. Okay, it, it, most cultures and countries don't ask that question, and we'll get to this, but they, they would see suffering or, or walking through a hard season having some meaning tied to it, 
there would be more cultural basis around this is doing something in me, not just to me. And so when you and I ask, how could a good God allow evil and suffering, you have to understand primarily that's a Western culture kind of this time frame moment question. Is it, do we dismiss the question? I don't think so. But we just have to recognize where it comes from. And so it's hard to navigate suffering because you and I internally, we don't like it. In our world, we, we try to dismiss or detach from it. The last thing is this. When we talk about this conversation, it is best to look at it through the lens of the story of God. And that's what we're going to do today. This conversation is best by looking at the story of God, okay? The story always gives context to the moments. The story will always give context to the moments. Moments without context are often misunderstood, okay? Silly example, verses that we have, right? Verses without context are often misunderstood. But moments inside of my life without the context of the story of God can be misunderstood or maybe can be frustrating because I'm not sure what this means for me. And so where I want to start is just giving us context for this, okay? And it's going to sound maybe very similar to last week in how we started, but I think this is really important because it's a really big conversation, and if we don't have a foundation for it, right, if we don't have a foundation for it, we have a no, no return point, no starting point, I think that's where it gets frustrating. This is what I believe, that in the beginning, there is, there is a good God who created us and created creation, created the heavens and the earth, everything that you and I see. In the beginning, is a good creator who created a good creation, Genesis 2.18 tells us this, the Lord, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What is he saying there? He is saying everything up to this point has been good. You see, after every day, and it was good, and it was good, the moment where something was missing, it's not good. I have to fulfill that. I have to play that out. We see that the creator, the good creator, created creation to be good and enjoyed, and joyful, and lively. There was supposed to be happiness and relationship inside of that setting, all, all the way to the point where all of a sudden, man is alone, this isn't good, and I have to fix it. Our creator's desire, and I don't know where you're at with Jesus and God, our creator's desire is relationship with you. He loves you. He wants what's best for you. He wants what's good for you. Right? That is the initial relationship that he's invited us into. But we see very quickly that the good creation, human beings, the good creation made a bad decision. Good creation made a bad decision. God gave Adam and Eve a decision. He gave them free will to live in relationship with him, not as robots, but to live in relationship with him as his creation, and he gave them a decision, ultimately reflected in Genesis 2, 16 and 17, and the Lord God commanded the man, you're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. That ultimately, he gave them a decision to live inside of this good relationship, the goodness that God created not just as robots or employees to do the thing, but in relationship, choosing God as best and living inside of his love. And we see the story in Genesis 3 very quickly. The serpent comes in. We know that Satan 
deceives the man and the woman, Adam and Eve, and says, no, 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 you won't die. You'll become like God. And there's this something that switches inside of them, this switch that gets turned on, like that could be good. Knowing good and evil, maybe having this wisdom, having this control, having this power, maybe that's what we should do. We see very quickly that that bad decision of eating of the tree that they were asked to not eat of ushered in destruction and death. Right? God has already warned them. He, he already presented to them what the result was going to be. Right? Eat of any tree except for this one because this one, this one is going to lead to death. We know that that, that meant, yes, physical death eventually, but ultimately a death relationally and spiritually and mentally and emotionally and destruction that would come along with that. We were deceived into believing that that was the route. And as we chose that route and chose to believe that we could sit in the seat that only God sits in, what very quickly happened is, as we started to play that out, death and destruction very quickly took over. Because we don't have any idea how to sit in that seat. So that bad decision ushered in destruction and death. But the reality is this, we end up seeing how broken we are. Sin creates a mess, it creates mayhem, it creates madness in our world. We consistently don't pass the test, consistently fall short, and it creates a lot of chaos in, the, in between. And what I believe is this, is that suffering became a universal experience because of the death and destruction that was ushered in through a bad decision. Now listen, I want to be clear about this. Because I say that, right? And maybe a follow-up question would be, does suffering equate to being punishment for our sin? Right? Is suffering a punishment for our sin? I don't believe so. Here's how I would word it. Suffering is not a punishment of sin, but is a consequence of sin. I don't think God looked at us and said, now suffer. It's a consequence of us choosing to live inside of our own bounds and inside of our own kind of territory and trying to be our own God instead of following the one true God. We actually see Jesus speak to this, and it's interesting. John 9, Jesus is walking along. He is in the heat of his ministry time. He is just having uh, teachings, and he's healing people. He runs into this man who's blind, as he went along, he saw a man that was blind. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sins? Okay, in the cultural moment Jesus lived in, in the first century, they would have typically believed that your suffering equated to a sinful lifestyle or sinful behavior, right? He, something bad is happening to this guy because he is bad, right? He was born blind. And then Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, which would have been mind-boggling. But this happens so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Listen, that ultimately suffering is a consequence of sin. Now listen, maybe in two ways. Universally, as death and destruction have taken over our world, we just experience things that we would say are suffering. Natural disasters, uh, medical problems. We have mental and emotional health things going on inside of our life, right? Those are universally taking place and impact us all. And then there's a personal consequence, right? Sometimes 
it's because someone has done something to me, a sin that has kind of come back on me, or decision that I have made, and I'm suffering the consequences of them, right? But it's not a direct punishment. It's not a punishment because I am a sinner. It's a consequence of living in a broken world and living around other broken people. Here's what's interesting, though. What I find interesting is this, and this is something that I play out in my mind all the time. It baffles me, and it's beautiful at the same time. That that, that is the story of humanity. And if we just end there, we're like, that's just a rough book, right? No one wants to read that and end the book there. What I find fascinating about the good creator is that he's watching this all play out. That we have chosen to lean away from him, to run away from him, to run away from what is good and and pursue our own definition of good, which ends up being destruction and death. And in that process, I, as a human being, think it could be really easy to just dismiss us because we dismissed him. And what we get is what we deserve. And what is baffling and beautiful is this, is the very thing, the very thing that you and I struggle with the very thing that, that we wrestle with, the very thing that you and I have questions about and hurts us so bad, the suffering, the evil, Jesus didn't dismiss us. He didn't run from us. He didn't just let us be to our own devices. He ran in, and he ran into the mess of it. Jesus did not come on a high horse and separate himself from the suffering of you and I. He ran into the mess of it, and he suffered with you and I. That is very important to note. In this conversation, the God of the universe wants to be very relational with you. He's not running away from you. And I think it's profound that the very thing, the very thing that often separates us, creates most pain in our life, is the thing that also saved us because the one who is our Savior suffered on the cross. He didn't come and just tell us some good stories, but he literally played it out and saved us from the thing that separates us from him. Because that's the last point. The good creator decided to enter into our suffering. He decided to enter into our suffering. Our cultural moment begs salvation equals safety. What we see the gospel say is salvation meant suffering meant suffering for Jesus. And our salvation comes through the pathway of that. Hebrews 12, 2. This passage says this, the writer of Hebrews tells us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run this life. Let us run with a diligence, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we need to lean into. Why? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hands of the throne of God. Here's the reality. Jesus didn't come to fulfill an empty mission. Jesus didn't come just to say, I am God, peace out. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us. Jesus, the God of the universe, minimized himself to a human because he loves you so much and joys over the fact that he can have a relationship with you. He took the cross. He suffered for us. Why? Because of the joy set before him. I've heard it argue that you and I are the joy set before him. Listen, 
we distance ourselves from a relational God and there's a joy that he has in reuniting us with him through what he did on the cross and through his resurrection. That Jesus came as God in Abad to suffer with me and for me so that I could experience healing. He did not dismiss it, distance himself with it, uh, from it. He came and dealt with it. How? By suffering for us and dying and rising again. And he wants to restore good where it disappeared. We see that ultimately he wants us to live in eternity in relationship with him and to enjoy what he ultimately started with and wanted us to enjoy in the first place. Revelation 21.4. This is at the very end, right? He will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away and the new is here. In eternity with God, we are promised goodness and grace and peace. Listen, it started good creator creating good creation. The good creation made a bad decision. That decision led to death and destruction. And that good creator didn't distance himself from it, but he ran into it. Embracing those, the least of these, those that were in the mess, those who were suffering. And ultimately wants to reunite us to him in eternity so that we would be able to experience the goodness of first and foremost who he is, not just some fleeting goodness of my life. He wants us to experience that with him. Now, I share all that, and you're like, that, that fits great in a storybook. It fits great in a lesson. That sounds great, but why would a good God, why would the good creator allow it now? Why not just put an end to it? What's the point? Why wait till then? Why not just fix it now? What's he trying to do inside of it? I'm just going to go through three quick things with three passages involved. We're going to jump around to give you an overview. Because I ultimately think that suffering and walking through hardship has meaning tied to it. And instead of dismissing us in it, God decides to use it for our good. Instead of just getting it away from us, he decides to go internal and change us. That there is purpose to your pain, as I've heard it said. So what is he trying to do in the process of that? What is the good God trying to do in the process of our suffering and pain? I would say this. The first thing is God wants to be God in your life. God wants to be God in your life. Here's the reality. In sin, in the seat of I can be God, right, it distorts my reality of who God is and who I am, right? Sin distorts our reality of how to live this life, and so our sin blinds us is the word that we see Scripture use. It blinds us, and so we try to live out in control. We try to live out in comfort, me being God instead of God being God, and I believe that suffering deteriorates that reality. When you and I suffer, we're reminded of two things. Well, one, I can't control everything because things are falling apart, right? It's just all a mess. But also, I need someone. I need someone to look to. I need someone to run into. And maybe I can't figure this thing out all on my own. 
we see a story in the Old Testament. It's a mind-boggling story. If you, if you are new to you know, grace or you're, you're not following Jesus, this story, you'll be like, what is going on? It's the story of Job. It's spelled Job. It's the story of Job, okay? What we see open up in the story of Job is this. Job 1 and 2, we see a scene open up. It's a crazy scene. It's God with kind of his staff members, angelic beings, and he's having a staff meeting He's talking to them about what's going on in the world and things of like that. And one of these angelic beings with the title Satan, which that title means accuser, approaches the throne. And the Satan looks to God and he says, what about your man Job? What do you think about him? God's like, well, he's following me. He's pursuing me, right? Satan's like, I think it's because his life is so good. I bet you if his life wasn't going great, it wouldn't be the same thing. Because here's what you need about Job. Job was a righteous man, followed God, loved God, and his life was fruitful. He had kids and he had livestock, he had riches, everything was going his way. And Satan presses into God on Job. He won't stay faithful if everything's taken away. And God, God takes that dare. God takes that dare and says, you can take whatever you want away from him except for his life, and we'll see how this plays out, right? And you see over the course of 30-some-odd chapters, Hebrew poetry throughout of Job wrestling with God, questioning God, asking God questions, wondering. He has friends come, and the friends aren't helpful. They're trying to process what Job did to equate to this kind of suffering, right? They're pressing into a bunch of different things, but ultimately what we see happen is this. Job, for 30-some chapters in our Bible, just questions and wrestles and sits in silence. He has boils. He's lost everything. Kids, his livestock, his life, everything. And he questions God and he says, why, God? Where are you? What are you doing? Do you even know what you're doing? And God answers him in the form of a storm. Get yourself there for a second. Because in Job 38, we see God answered Job like this. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. The God of the universe is speaking to Job inside of this all. I don't think he's, he's angered. I think he's just like, Job, do you see what I see? Brace yourself for what I'm about to introduce to you. Brace yourself for what I'm about to present to you because you do not know what I know. He says this, I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? And he goes on for several chapters talking to Job in this regard. What's happening here? I think God, more than anything, wants Job and us to know who he is in our life. He is not just some distant deity that we attest religious activity to. He is a God who loves us and cares about us, but who is all-powerful and all-wise and has control over everything that you and I see, the universe and the workings of it. 
And Job is being questioned inside of this. And what God wants us to see is that God's wisdom is beyond what you and I can fathom. God's wisdom is seen in his control over the complexity. And Job is humbled by God in this moment. Because in this story, right, in this story, I think that God wants more than anything for Job's faith to ultimately see him for who he is. Ultimately see him for who he is. When suffering hits, and some of you are walking through it, some of you are walking through it with people you love, some of you are walking through it personally, some of you are just watching it and you have questions. And it's really easy to forget God is God inside of that. It's easy to do that when my kids disobey me. It's easy to do that when someone cuts me off in, in traffic. Right? God wants us to understand that he is the one who is all wise. He is the one who has control. He is the one who understands the complexities of the universe and understands how to run into it. And so I think what he would be asking us inside of suffering is, does my heart see God as God? Does my heart see him as God or, or is he just someone I, I go to when I need something good to happen? He's someone I go to when not everything's working out for me. I don't think he was upset with Job for asking all the questions, okay? I don't think he's like, Job, why'd you ask me so many questions? I think in the process of Job asking questions, God reveals himself to be the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-wise creator of the universe. Trust me, Job. Trust me to be God in your life even when you have no idea what's going on because I'm over the complexity. Now, I believe that God's wisdom is he draws us towards that inside of suffering, but he doesn't dismiss compassion inside of that. That another layer of walking through suffering is this, that God wants us to draw near to him, but he ultimately wants to draw near to your life. God wants to draw near to your life. In the Gospels, this is why I believe that Jesus came in the form of a human lived with us in flesh, came down, was born into a manger, lived an anonymous life as a carpenter, and then got some fishermen around him, and he taught them. He lived in the messiness, in the humanity, in the fleshliness. And I believe that the God of the universe who created everything in the beginning, who ultimately beckoned Job to see his wisdom, beckon, beckons us to see his compassion and his love inside of moments of suffering and evil and questions. We see that play out in a story. Jesus is with his disciples in John 11, and one of his best friends, he gets word, passes away. His name is Lazarus. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, send for Jesus. The one you love has passed away. Jesus waits a few days and then goes with his disciples into this scene. And when he gets there, he is bombarded with questions and concerns and thoughts and why this and why that and what's going on here and why weren't you there at this time? And I love what Jesus does. Jesus, he doesn't dismiss their questions. He hasn't belittle them. Why don't you just believe in me? But he also doesn't just heal immediately and fix the situation. What do we see happen? John 11, it's on the screen. As Jesus was presented with questions, John 11, 33, 36 says this, 
Jesus saw her weeping, one of the sisters, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Listen, that literally, that word can be translated as like a gut reaction. He's just troubled. His gut was turning and twisting at the scene of what's going on. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Shortest verse in the Bible, yet arguably one of the most powerful, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Listen, Jesus gets emotional with us. He gets emotional with us. Jesus doesn't just heal him immediately and say, come on, why didn't you believe? I got this all figured out. Jesus also doesn't just kick him to the side and say, why are you crying? Don't you know what I've come to do? And, and why are you doing this? And don't you know I'm the God of the universe? He sits in it with you and I, and there's something powerful to that. You know why? I said this in series, series ago in regards to the story of Jonah. Because I don't believe God sees stupid, he sees suffering. God does not look down on you and I like, oh my gosh, they're so stupid. They're so dumb. Why? They just knew they wouldn't be suffering. He doesn't just like kind of walk around as like, well, that's dumb and that's dumb. And, that's, and, and if they just would figure it out on their own, they wouldn't have to go through all this. He sits with us in it. He sees our suffering and it first and foremost beckons to him emotionally and he wants to be there with us in it. How loving is our God? How loving is our God? That the very thing that separates us from him, the, the, the consequence of what separates us from him, he wants to sit inside of that. We are suffering because of decisions we've made. And he says, I'm not gonna separate myself from that. I'm gonna sit in it and give you something better. But you need to know I care for you. I love you. I'm here for you inside of that. God's wisdom is seen in Job, but God's compassion is seen in John. As the God of the universe cries with us as he watches the consequences of sin destroy us. Jesus came not to condemn, but to save. He runs into our life in a unique way. And for some of us this morning, we're walking through a lot. And there may not be any answers or solutions may not be any path forward, or it might just seem dark right now. God does not just exist in the good times, but he exists in the awful times too. And he is calling out for you to sit with him in that, to cry out to him, to run to him, to be with him. The question I would ask is, does my heart cry out for God? My heart cry out for God. Do I know God as God? And does my heart cry out for him? Am I willing to sit with him inside of that? Lastly is this. God wants to be God in our life. God wants to draw near to our life. I think lastly, God wants to build perseverance in your life. This feels more logistical maybe, right? Like where's the purpose in my pain? God wants to build perseverance into your life. James, the half-brother of Jesus in his letter to the 12 tribes that are scattered, the Israelite nation, the Jewish nation that's scattered, he writes this in his first chapter right out of the gate. He says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Here's what's important to note. They were facing trials of all sorts of kinds. He was not writing 
to a group of people that were living easy and comfortable. He was writing to a group of people that were on the run, that were suffering, that were persecuted, a group of people that were scattered. Some of them didn't know where to go or who to run to or where community was found. They're being kind of attacked on all sides. And he says this, consider it pure joy. That doesn't register for us. What do you mean? How could you consider pure joy when you face trials? He goes on, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Lacking anything. Does that wording look familiar? Kind of matches Hebrews 12 a little bit, doesn't it? Your perseverance, your faith play out throughout the race because I believe in this life that the God of the universe wants us to see what he is doing on the inside of us, not just what's happening on the outside of us. And what's on the outside of us is important. But what is he doing in the process of that? Because he wants to have our whole being, not just our hands and feet to do stuff for him. He wants us to be with him and he wants to build something into us in the process of it. Perseverance is deciding to follow Jesus even in the face of difficulty. It's deciding to follow Jesus even when it doesn't make sense, when that kid picks on me, when life is really hard. Why? Because he suffered for me. He faced the cross for the joy that was set before him. Hold on. Why? Because I can do it, because I'm strong enough? No, because he was strong enough, and he passed the test. And as he passes the test, he promises to transform us in the process. It's interesting, there's a, there's a man, Viktor Frankl, who lived during World War II and actually was a part of a number of concentration camps. He was a Jewish man. And he writes several books on suffering and perseverance and walking through that experience. He survived it. And he survived it, and, and he would claim because his suffering started to gain meaning and purpose, and he found meaning and purpose inside of that. This is what he would say. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of sacrifice, he would say. Suffering ceases to just be suffering when it has meaning to it. And that is a journey. You're not going to walk away from here and say, I got figured out. I'll just attribute to this. That's a journey of asking God to reveal to you, what are you doing inside of me, Lord? What are you doing inside of me for my sake and maybe for the sake of others around me? That is not a one-stop shop. Give me the five easy tricks. That is a hard, long journey of building a perseverance, what I would call resilience, a grit to our faith. Because when it gets difficult, it's easy to pull out of the race. And yet he would say when it gets difficult, that's when you need to run into it. Rick Warren would put it this way. God has a purpose behind every problem. He uses circumstances to develop our character. In fact, he depends more on circumstances to make us like Jesus than he depends on our reading the Bible. It's interesting. It's interesting, right? I think sometimes we think if we just do all the right steps, we just do all the right things, we just kind of that. God uses circumstances just as much as he uses you reading the Bible, you being in a life group, you going on mission. The circumstances of life cannot be dismissed as I need to get through it, but how and what does God want me to see in the midst of it? Because maybe there's more 
than what I am seeing. Testing reveals my faith and the purpose I have in it, which means this, in suffering, in suffering, if I ultimately see Jesus in the midst of it, it doesn't leave me hopeless, but filled with hope because Jesus gives me the most meaning inside of it. Now, as the worship team comes up and we end today, okay? Here's the reality. I understand that this 30, 40 minutes, a lot of facts in Bible passages and things like that. Like I said, my hope is that this would facilitate a conversation. Please, if you're walking through something in, in as simple as I need prayer or I need to talk to someone or I need to process what's going on or I have questions about past things, come talk to me, Paige, someone on staff. We'll get you connected. We'll get you connected to not answers but to community because here's the reality. All of us have been through it or either walking through it or will go through it. It's cyclical. It's the nature of human life. But it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. My plea would be this. Not just saying yes to doing it alone, but ultimately would you consider saying yes to the Savior who suffered for you? Would you say yes to the Savior who suffered for you? I would ask you to consider maybe one of three ways. First is this, for some of us, do I need to just turn to him? May run to him. Give my life to him. Recognizing that I am a sinner in need of a Savior and the Savior didn't back away from me but he ran into me and he suffered in the same ways that you and I suffer not just so that he can say I'm relatable to you but ultimately so he can save our souls would you consider what it means to say yes to him you don't have to have everything sorted out every question answered you don't have to feel feel it inside of your stomach but what if what if you were to lean into him for others of us do I need to talk to him do I need to talk to him? I think, I think oftentimes in circumstances and inside of life, I just want to figure it out myself. I just want to get through it. I think our creator and father and shepherd just please with us to talk to him in the pain points of life. He is not distant in those moments. He's close. He wants to sit next to you in that. For those of us, do you need to start walking with him in it? Do you need to start walking with him in it? Literally visualizing Jesus walking with you every day, doing what Jesus does, becoming more like him as you walk through the pains of life. The pains of life, ultimately asking him, what are you doing in me? Not just stop what's happening on the outside of me. Because he wants your heart more than anything. So we're going to end today. Worship team is going to sing one more song, but I want you to just close your eyes, bow your heads. And instead of praying, I want to read a passage. And meditation here is not emptying your mind, but filling it with who Jesus is and what he tells us. I want you to meditate on this passage. Find a word, find a verse, find a piece of it that you can just play throughout your minds. 
with your eyes closed and your head bowed. Isaiah 53, 1 through 6. Isaiah writes this. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry grounds. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Father, we come to you. We praise you for your grace and mercy. And we give you this time as we sing. We process who you are.